Welcome to PMA Takes on Tech, the podcast that explores the problems, solutions, people, and ideas that are shaping the future of the produce industry. I'm your host, Bonnie Estes, Vice President of Technology for the Produce Marketing Association, and I've spent years in the ag tech sector. So I can attest, it's hard to navigate this ever-changing world in developing and adopting new solutions to industry problems. Thanks for joining us and for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. My goal of the podcast is to outline a problem in the produce industry and then discuss several possible solutions that can be deployed today. This week's podcast is being sponsored by Payne Schwartz Partners. A global leader in sustainable food chain investing, Payne Schwartz Partners is a private equity firm with a demonstrated 20 plus year track record of investments across the food and agribusiness value chain. The firm leverages a thesis driven approach and operational expertise to enhance value across its portfolio. Please visit www.payneschwartz.com to find out more about the firm and its activities. Today, we talk with Paul Lightfoot. Paul is the founder and current president of Bright Farms, a hydroponic leafy greens producer in the U.S. with five farms in 2,500 retail stores. I talked to Paul about his journey with Bright Farms over the last 10 years and the strengths he sees with indoor growing around supply chain and water. Paul has also started a newsletter called Negative Food and is on a mission to look at how we can grow food and create brands based on regenerative farming practices that draw carbon from the atmosphere. Paul believes if we eat food that draws down carbon on a net basis, our food system will be a lever to reverse climate change. He believes consumers can make this happen. By choosing foods with negative carbon footprints, market forces will guide farmers and food companies toward regenerative practices. Paul is optimistic that the next five years will bring a wave of carbon negative foods to the market and by feeding ourselves with such foods, we'll make the world a better place and save it for future generations. We cover climate change, carbon negative foods, a challenge to organic crop systems and oysters. It's great to talk to you, Paul. There are a number of topics that I want to discuss with you today. Let's start with the great success of Bright Farms and then move into other topics you are speaking about frequently these days, like carbon. Most of our listeners know Bright Farms. It's a hydroponic leafy greens company in the U.S. You're in over 2,500 stores, which is pretty amazing. I just read that recently and uh, maybe it's gone up, but that's a great number. Um, And you have four, soon to be five farms. So you were the founder of Bright Farms over 10 years ago. Um, What was your vision when you started Bright Farms? Yeah, well, I love the question because it's fun to think about that. Um, You know, the idea for Bright Farms was one that I effectively made up from scratch, but it was based on identifying, you know, a problem in the marketplace that I thought could be solved. And that's the answer to your question, right? The vision was to go after a supply chain, um, you know, and and the incumbent salad supply chain, which is, you know, all based out on the West Coast, I thought was vulnerable to disruption. You know, it was vulnerable largely in terms of of having a, a product that was made worse by its supply chain. But I also thought that that industry was going to face some headwinds 
with respect to water, food safety, um, uh, you know, vulnerability to, to weather as, as the climate change. And so the vision was to really replace a, a long and complex supply chain that caused you know, problems, sort of suboptimal outcomes for the product, and to replace that long and complex supply chain with one that was short and simple uh, in a way that was better for the product and would be better for consumers and for customers. Um, it was it was that simple, and you know, and, and that vision, you know, I'd say has largely been realized. You know, we're we're not, as you probably know, we're not the only player in the space anymore. <laughs> no, nope. um, we do have more than twenty five hundred stores, and we actually have five farms that are open. So we're even a little ahead of of, of the data that you're looking at. Um, you know, but there's been billions that have flown into the into the space just over the last you know two or three years. Um, and every every major retailer, every major food retailer in the U.S. has a local indoor program, or is working feverishly to get one so that they're not behind anymore. Um, you know, and I, and I would say that, you know, it's a really big category. And I don't mean the indoor part, the whole thing, but the indoor local slice of it is still very small. It's probably less than 150 million dollars, uh, but it's really where all the growth is. So we, you know, we feel and 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 Bright Farms is the leader in 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 this niche. So you know, we feel like you know the the, the thesis has been validated by the response in the marketplace. We feel like the growth is amazing right now, but we feel like there's a, there's just a ton of work to be done. So there's so much market share to be captured over the next several years um, that we've got our blinders on out executing as fast as we can. That's amazing. And like people weren't talking about this 10 years ago, you know, all this, all the disruption, especially since we've seen, you know, in the last year or so people weren't thinking about, oh, we're not going to have enough water. Or, oh, what if there's a supply chain disruption? So it's pretty amazing that, um, I mean, you were obviously, <laughs> but yeah. I don't think, I don't think consumers were thinking that way. And, you know, I didn't, um, you know, I didn't make this up on a whim. I did, I did a lot of research, right? I, I sort of developed a, an analytical thesis. People were talking about the problems. I mean, you, you can go back 10 years ago and California had plenty of people talking about the water problems as an mm -hmm. example. It wasn't being talked about it in a, in a system-wide way, in a way that it wouldn't impact the category. And, and of course, that's where the opportunity for a company like Bright Farms was born, right? You know, it, uh, um, you know, thinking about problems in an, in an innovative way is often how you get innovation. Uh, but to, to, to agree with you strongly, when I brought the, the idea home to my wife, um, who's still my wife, she said, no, she said, no, I don't approve of that. <laughs> uh oh. Well, I mean, I, we, we overcame that. Not, not yeah. without, I spent some political capital on it. There was a lot of people saying, what the hell are you talking about? Yeah, no, it's really true. So how do you see the rise of indoor salads and how the indoor salad industry will win in the long run? Well, the, the rise is, it's again, because of the product, right? You know, and, and it, it, it generally is, right? You, you need to have several factors, but if you don't have a product that's a better experience for the customers, in this case, retailers or consumers, it's not going to work. So it's, you know, the easiest way to think about it is that the local indoor salads are five to seven days fresher than the long distance field salads. And, you know, it's a two week category. So a week fresher is, is just an enormous amount of difference. Um, you know, that's why there's this rise. And, and the, the improvement of the product can be seen in certain metrics that are amazingly powerful. In almost all retailers that we've gone into, their category sales have risen materially, right? So same amount of shelf space, but the dollar sales of packaged salads goes up 
when we enter the category, right? And for a retailer, that's that's catnip, right? That's really where the action is because they want to increase their sales without increasing their costs or, or, or cutting out of the products. So I think that's going to continue in the long run, in the near run, in the long run, you know, and, and, and really over the long run, it's the idea of sustainability that will be the reason that indoor salads eventually goes the same way that indoor tomatoes went, right? And, and if any of your listeners don't know, if you go back 25 or 30 years ago, just about every fresh supermarket tomato was grown in the field somewhere, often in places like California and, and Florida. And today, the vast majority of supermarket fresh tomatoes are grown indoors. Uh, we have every reason to see the same thing is happening now with salads. Um, and, and a large part of that will be because of the product, of course, but it's also just going to be sustainability in general. And I don't mean sustainability like big companies talk about their strategies. I, I literally mean the definition of sustainability is can something continue indefinitely? And if your business model is based on the aquifers beneath Salinas Valley, you know, it's the definition of not sustainable, right? Every year, more water is taken out than is recharged through snow melt or rain or any other ways. And, um, you know, they're, they're digging deeper wells. The ground is subsiding in some cases. The, the salt water is intruding into the aquifers. Um, if our government doesn't regulate that, if our, if our commercial markets don't regulate that, Mother Nature surely will, because in the long run, you know, sustainability is not a choice. It's going to be imposed on us. And this is one of the first places on Earth that we're seeing it imposed right now while watching. So do you think then right now what it looks like to me is the category is getting bigger? Um, but do you think as there's more indoor that there's going to be less outdoor because of some of these limitations you're talking about? Well, it's above my pay grade to know the answer to that question. I mean, I, I, I actually think that humans should eat a lot of salads. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I think the whole category should grow. I do think almost all the growth is coming from indoor to local right now. Mm -hmm. um, whether that means that the field grown stuff will decline. It's, it's actually a very complex question to answer. And I meant that literally it's not something that I'm smart enough or have enough information to answer. Because um, a lot of it is like labor-based, right? It, will people continue to grow in fields, things that require migrant, migrant labor in a period in history where you can't get that kind of labor, where other products could be grown in a way that's more mechanized, right? It's, it, it's easier to automate. I don't know. I don't know how that's going to play out. Yeah. And I think with water, I'm in California and that's, you know, in the last couple of weeks, that's all anybody's talking about <clears throat> is we're just going into this huge drought. And what, what is that going to do, you know, even this year for, for crops, there's going to be a lot of crops not planted because there's just not going to be water. And, and the change in our water, we're now going to start getting more of our water from rain and not from snow melt. And we're not really set up to handle that. And so I think there's some infrastructure issues as well that um, it's going to cause some of the shift. So what did we learn from COVID that supports the growth and continued success of CEA? Well, I, I think of two main topics. The first is that people's health was a great predictor of whether or not they were vulnerable to severe illness. And, and by health, I mean it in the sense that even before COVID, you know, chronic diseases related to diet are the, are the, are the leading cause of death in the United States, right? And, and sadly, these are avoidable deaths, right? Um, we don't need to have chronic diseases related to our diet. That's a, that's a relatively modern invention, if I could use mm -hmm. that word for something so tragic. Um, and what we learned is that people that were that were subject to chronic diseases related to diet, to diet like like diabetes and obesity, 
we're dramatically more vulnerable to severe illness and fatalities of COVID. So that's the first thing we learned, right? People should replace the sugar sweetened and ultra processed foods that Americans eat with fresh fruits and vegetables. Uh, and they'll be less vulnerable to the next um, experience we have that's like COVID if, if God forbid we have another one. Uh, and the second one, which I think is probably more what you meant when you asked the question, is that we learned that having long and complex supply chains doesn't serve us well in times of volatility and disruption, right? And before I started Bright Farms, you know, I ran a company that 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 automated the distribution centers of retailers. And in many ways, the job was like very efficiently getting goods made in the Far East to consumers in America. And by efficiently, I mean, I mean at low cost, right? And when I started that, I was about 30 years old. I did it for almost 10 years. I felt great about efficiency. I, I like efficiency as, as a thing on its own. But over time, I started feeling less excited about like a global hyper-efficient supply chain. And that's why you see me thinking about local supply chains. And then, then all those feelings became intensified during the, the pandemic, where you saw that a, a global problem like COVID um, prevented materials and people from moving around the earth efficiently. We're still, of course, suffering with like, you know, uh, chip manufacturing shortages of people, you know, there's not enough cars because of chips and things like that. I do think that we're realizing as a society that you want to have enough slack in your, in your supply chains that when there's disruptions, you won't have people go without things that they need, like chips, like food, um, not not the chips that are food, but you know, chips that are, that are <laughs> yeah. semiconductors or whatever. Um, you know, in a particular, um, you know, having a decentralized system of intense food production facilities like what Bright Farms does, I do think is in the interest of society, and I, I feel proud to be working on that during this period. Yeah. So lastly, since this is a tech podcast, what technology advancement has helped make Bright Farm successful and what areas or new technology do you need more of? Well, I, I, so I'll, I'll sort of, I'll start from like early to now to future in, in the answer. You know, the first thing for us was controlling the climate, right? And I think people sort of gloss over that, um, but it's important and it's not that easy to do. <laughs> so, you know, we have, you know, we have high-tech computer-controlled, you know, greenhouse facilities that deliver the experience to the plants that they need to survive and to thrive. And, and that's that's where it starts. And we can't ever lose sight of that, right? Especially as the climate changes, whereas we operate in more places with different climates that, that continues to have to evolve. Um, but the second is things like, you know, camera scanning and machine learning and artificial intelligence. You know, we've got a proprietary platform that we call Bright OS that really pulls all the data from you know thousands of sensors and lots of different systems, and not just not just in the environment for growing plants. It's also the the noise that comes from our supply chain, that comes from the demand from our retailer partners, and it synthesizes it all together in a way where we can operate as resource efficiently and as cost efficiently as possible, um, in a way to make us a more effective company. You know, we, we're not. We're a company that has always made it clear to ourselves that we're not growing fancy food for fancy people on the coast. We want to grow, you know, sort of mainstream premium salads that Americans can afford. You know, we're selling at, uh, you know, we're selling at, at, at Walmart and all Hotel Hayes, not just not just at your, your neighborhood sort of inner city fancy um, specialty food retailer. 
And so we want to be able to operate as, as cost effective as we, as we can. And I, and I do think, by the way, that the data shows we are the most cost competitive of the of the of the indoor uh, salad producers. So yeah. that's sort of that's sort of now, by the way. But as I think about what's in the future, it's definitely automation. We find ourselves we're, we're already highly automated, I should say, at Bright Farms. And we grow the way we do, which is horizontally largely because it enables a high degree of automation without $100 million robots, right? Growing vertically hasn't really figured that out yet. Um, they're either spending a lot on labor, labor or they're doing insane amounts of like uh, you know, almost primary science to, to, you know, to automate something that's not easy to, to automate. But we find ourselves now, I founded Bright Farms in 2011, we find ourselves now in a much more challenging labor environment than, than I think I had ever imagined, yeah, than I had ever imagined. And it it, it didn't just start. It was, it, and it didn't just start because Trump had bad immigration policies. It started well before then. It was exacerbated under the Trump administration. And now it's gotten much worse because of COVID. It would be naive to think that it will revert, you know, next year to what it was seven years ago. So we're prepared for a really long haul where labor is difficult to come by. And we're making massive investments in, in automation right now in areas that we didn't necessarily know we were going to try to automate so that we can we can overcome those challenges and, and you know, and be continue to be uh, showing up on shelves for retailers and, uh, and doing it with high quality and, and the surety of supply. So let's um, shift gears a little bit here and talk about um, some of the things that you've been talking about and you've been making a lot of noise lately. I love it with some different thinking um, through your newsletter called Negative Foods and articles I've read about you and speaking that you've done. And one of the things that um, a quote in your newsletter was, I have a voice and a platform to encourage and support and shine a spotlight on startups bringing carbon negative foods to market. And so I'm exercising that voice and leveraging that platform. So how did you get here? And kind of why is this important to you? And how is this an evolution of where you are in your career and your life and your beliefs? Yeah, it probably seems less abrupt to me than it does to, to <laughs> some people else. And I say that because, like, um, you know, I didn't, I didn't start Bright Farms just because I needed to, like, you know, find a new way to get paid, right? Like, I, I had a pretty good career before this, but I wanted to be in the sustainable food industry. And, it, and that was because my personal passion was there, right? I, I, I spent my 30s feeding myself and my family in a very progressive way, uh, and my career was was it felt a little bit old school, right? And I and I started thinking to myself, I wish my career was in this area that I have this personal passion. And so when I started Bright Farms, I, I think before I hired a single person, I knew what our mission was going to be, which was to improve the health of Americans and the health of the planet. Um, and so I think Bright Farms has that baked into its DNA because that's what I had baked into my DNA. And I'm proud that Bright Farms, you know, still flies that flag without me holding the flag very often. And um, in many ways, that was that, that that's what this next part is about as well, right? So it doesn't feel that abrupt to me because it's an evolution of the same sort of principles. And then as I thought about, you know, celebrating food brands that had, that had you know, supply chains that reverse, you know, climate change, I actually think about what I've done, right? Bright Farms at its heart is a company with like an innovative, sustainable supply chain that is a startup branded food company, right? 
And that turns out to be a somewhat unique set of experiences, I, you know, and I, and I guess I should say skills as well. If skills is something that you've done and you can help other people with. And so when I started thinking about how will the food industry change? And I, this is something I thought about for several years before I started talking about it out loud. And it was clear to me that foods with, with regenerative agricultural practices that had carbon negative or carbon neutral footprints were going to be a part of the solution for how society reversed climate change. And I just realized that my experiences would be more relevant to it than most because Bright Farms had a more sustainable, innovative supply chain. Bright Farms was a branded food company that went to market through retail. And so I just decided I would, you know, I would shine a spotlight on people, you know, earlier in their careers, perhaps building startups that had, you know, supply chains that would help reverse climate change with regenerative practices. And it felt it felt pretty natural to me to think about it. Um, like that. Now, of course, the the other piece of this is that climate change went from being something that that uh, environmentalists talked about ten years ago, but the president didn't, right? Um, and, and world leaders around the world did not to the degree they do now. And more important than anything, there are no longer large, thoughtful companies that aren't talking about it and talking about it as being an important priority. And, and not just operating companies, but the, the world's biggest investors, the endowments, the sovereign wealth funds, the family offices and foundations. It's very hard to find any now that doesn't feel like these sort of ESG principles are at the heart of their success in the future. And not just because of their values, but because they believe that not, not being long on, on reversing climate change is going to be a bad financial right. strategy. And so the rise of all of that sentiment in the world, particularly the commercial world, helped me recognize that this was the right time for something like this. Although I'll, I'll admit that it, it's the right time when I think about how the investors think about it and often how the entrepreneurs think about it. It's very early for how consumers think about it. Uh, a lot of consumers still don't really understand what regenerative agriculture is, and they don't necessarily understand how their food choices are going to you know, make climate change better or worse. Although I would argue that Food choices are about the only set of choices individuals can make that make a difference right now, um, because you're not easily changing the carbon footprint of steel and, and glass and concrete. You're not easily changing the footprint of, uh, of transportation and, uh, and energy. That has to be done on a more systemic or government basis. Uh, but your food choices could make a difference and almost right away. And, and I should also say that you know food is unique in that it can be a lever to make the climate worse or better, but it's also unique in that we always make choices about it all the time. You can reduce your airplane travel. Um, you can turn down the thermostat in your house in the winter in the Northeast, but you're probably still going to have to eat the same amount of meals next week as you did eight years ago. Yeah. So talk a little bit about what it means for food brands to have a carbon negative footprint and maybe give us some examples of some that you've highlighted. What, what does that mean? Oh, sure. So this is a topic I think, you know, I get excited about, right? And, um, and, it's, and it's inherently exciting. So carbon negative literally means you sequester more carbon than you emit, right? You draw down from the atmosphere more food, more, more carbon or carbon equivalents than you release in the atmosphere. Um, and, and so what that means is that if you find foods that have carbon negative footprints, when you eat those foods, you know, the atmosphere has a little bit less carbon in it than when you started. You know, and, and there's some terrific examples that I'd love to give. Here's an example of a category that people maybe don't think about that often. 
but it seems as if oysters are a product that pull carbon from the atmosphere when they're growing. And when you eat the, the meat of the oyster, the animal protein of the oyster, a lot of that carbon remains in the shell and it's essentially permanently sequestered. It can go into building materials. Huh. You can throw it back. You can throw it back into the ocean, essentially. Yeah. It becomes a shell that'll last a long time. Um, and if we had as many oysters, you know, New York Harbor, I think, had half of the world's oysters, you know, when Henry Hudson sailed up the Hudson in 1609, you know, we, we've harvested a billion oysters around New York City since then. And now there's only a tiny slice of what was once then. If we if we brought back that number of oysters, which by the way, makes the water cleaner, provides jobs. There's almost nothing bad about that. Um, it doesn't require feeding. There's no feed that goes in. There's no fresh water that's consumed. You're actually just going to end up with less carbon in the atmosphere than you had before. Uh, and if you think about what else could be like that, right? You know, you could grow wheat in a regenerative fashion. And, and I won't try to define what regenerative agriculture on this call is, but some of the practices include refraining from tilling the soil, using cover crops all year round, um, when possible, using uh, fertilizer from animals instead of from, from chemical processes like, like the Haber-Bosch system. And there's a handful of other practices as well. But when it's done in a thoughtful way and it's rotated in a, in a thoughtful plan, it has been proven by, by lots of, of, of research and by practical applications that crops like corn, soy, and wheat can be grown in a way that sequesters more carbon in the soil than is released by the, by the life cycle of the, of the, of the product. And then you could find yourself choosing, you know, regenerative bread brands, you know, where, where you're eating bread that is regenerative. Um, there is a, uh, you know, a, a, a Scotland based beer company called Brewdog that uses, you know, solar for a lot of its energy. It, ha it, it built a giant forest at its facility. And right now, because of that forest, it's drawing, you know, twice the carbon from the atmosphere than it releases in its manufacturing process. So every beer that you drink, Vani, from Brewdog is sequestering a little bit of carbon. So if you really care about climate change, you'll drink <laughs> as many of those tonight as you can. And there's there are I've probably talked about, you know, Belcampo meats on the West Coast, where not far from you, near Mount Shasta. You know, they they raise their 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 cows in a way that is, you know, it's, it's pastured on land that's used in a way that's also regenerative. Right. So I'm going to probably feed my kids hamburgers tonight. That's from that farm. And um, and again, it's it's a little bit better for the the carbon atmosphere than before it existed. And I'm probably the only one in this newsletter that's like making a list of these things for people. You know, and the newsletter is relatively new, but a couple of years into it, you know, maybe the newsletter will have an index of like here's products that you should think about shopping if you want to be part of the lever to reverse climate change. And and what I really hope is that consumers will start to recognize that they need to be choosing foods based on the carbon footprints. And when that happens, I think you're going to see a virtuous cycle of more consumer demand that it gets more, uh, more products that have these footprints. So it, this kind of ties into two questions I had. One is around scalability. And, you know, a lot of these brands are, are great local businesses and we love them. We love to have them. We love to support them. Can they scale to a level that is going to make a difference around carbon? And then secondly, kind of where is the consumer and how do we bring the consumer into this conversation so that these brands and brands in, and some of the bigger brands can actually do these practices and, and make a difference. Yeah. So, um, and I, and I do like to make a point that I am, I am a, uh, 
you know, I'm a, I'm a capitalist, right. I'm, I'm not, I'm a, a, a staunch environmentalist, but I'm not a, uh, I'm not a socialist and I'm not someone that thinks that we need to shut down the food economy to save ourselves. Um, I actually, you know, and, and I, I wrote a newsletter about big food that suggested that big food is a big part of the problem, but they might be part of the solution. And that upset some people, right. You know, that, that think that, that the smallholder producers are the future. And I, you know, I don't have anything against smallholder producers and I have lots of them in my pantry right now. Um, but if we're going to, for example, replace, you know, all the trucks from food distributors, it's going to be easier to do it with the four giant food distributors than it is going to be by starting a million regional food distributors that won't have the same access to capital that, you know, that, that may not have consistent, you know, sort of sustainability initiatives. So, um, so I think that business models that scale, scale, business models that don't scale, don't scale. I'm going to be trying my best to identify the ones that do and to celebrate them. I'd actually give you that oyster example. I, I think that there's a massive market opportunity for oysters around the world. It doesn't take up land. It doesn't pollute anything. It makes the water cleaner. Perhaps kelp is similar. If we could replace some of the soy and processed foods with kelp-based um, nutrients, you know, that's similar to oysters in the way that it grows. Very little inputs, better for the environment, um, pretty cost-effective to produce. Uh, and there's been an enormous amount of research. You know, I, I would I would suggest looking at the Rodale Institute or or mm -hmm. the IPCC report that suggests that a lot of the row crops that are grown in a way that's bad for for carbon can be grown in a way that's good for carbon at enormous scale. You know, and, and the the NRCS, the division of the USDA that that teaches farmers um, how to operate well, has been teaching this for for a long time, for decades. It's not some new concept for the NRCS or for the USDA, it's getting farms to adopt it. It's, it's what's going to be important. Um, really importantly, we haven't talked about farmers in this conversation, and I'm, my newsletter is not celebrating farmers, it's celebrating brands, but the brands aren't going to be worth much if they don't have good farmers that are able right. to succeed. There is a lot of data that suggests that yields will go down when they leave behind their current practices and move to regenerative practices, but that their costs will go down even more. So you'll see less yield, but you'll see higher farm income. And that will be welcomed by farmers, particularly younger farmers. And we need younger farmers in this country, right? We're sort of aging out our, our farmers. Um, you know, a lot of today's farms feel like they're on a treadmill of higher yields and lower income. And that turns out not to be sustainable either. And, and again, I believe that sustainability has a way of imposing itself on systems. Um, so I, I think that a lot of farms are, are getting it now that moving to regenerative practices for those sorts of crops is quite doable at scale. And when they do it, the yields will go down and their, their, their incomes will improve. And I don't want to leave this concept out here that we're going to grow less food and we're going to starve, right? Um, I made the joke about, you know, my business models based on feeding 10 million people. I also feel like when I hear people say, we, we, don't, we, we don't have enough food to feed the people, I think that's, that's just so obviously not the case, right? You know, 40% of food is wasted right now. I asked Paul to talk about his view on organic food and how organics connect and don't connect with regenerative ag. I'll start by saying that the idea of organic is a great one, right? Yeah. And um, my family eats a ton of organic food. So I'll start by saying, I don't want to be, I don't want to be a hypocrite. I don't want my kids to hear this and, and comment online that I'm a liar since our pantry and our refrigerator is full of organic food. So my, my actions are clear that I do support organic. At the same time, and I'll, I'll say this directly, the organic movement has failed to achieve its goals, right? 
if I think back to what we were trying to get done when this country adopted the organic standard, it was to reduce the use of pesticides. It was to make food healthier. It was to make the environment better when it comes to the agriculture system. And we just simply haven't done those things, right? You just look at, first of all, look at the fact that only 1% of U.S. farmland is organic, right? Like it, it's it's not even material. It's it's completely de minimis in terms of the impact it's having on U.S. farmland. I think something like 6% of our food is organic, right? So we're importing all of that. Maybe it's doing good for the places that we're importing it from, which would be fine. It's just not doing it on a material basis in a way that's changing you know, the American farm system. Um, so, but I would also argue that, you know, pesticide use has skyrocketed over the last 10 years, right? I thought we were supposed to get less pesticide use. And then finally, and, and I, I will say that I don't think this was well understood, you know, like when the USDA adopted the organic standard in 1990, I don't think it was well understood that being organic didn't mean being good for carbon emissions. And there's just lots of cases now of food being grown that meets the organic standards, but isn't doing much for carbon emissions. In, in fact, maybe it's, it's you know, a, a bad actor for carbon emissions. There are organic, you know, regenerative organic standards out there. They're not adopted by anybody yet. They're not, they're not official, I don't think. Uh, that sounds like a great idea to me, right? Have, have both, um, you know, but, but for now, yeah, I, I think organic has proven to not meet its goals and it's a shame. And if and if if consumers think that, hey, I'm doing everything I can, I'm eating organic, like I, I, I'm playing my part here. It's not my fault that we have climate change. They shouldn't feel that way. Right. They're, they're going to have to make more choices than, than just eating organic. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you. I mean, the organic movement started in a really great place, like with great goals. And but I think times have changed. It's like a lot of these rules that were put together, you know, decades ago. And, and I think really looking at incorporating different practices and having slightly different goals and measuring those goals makes a lot of sense. Uh, if, if what people think they're doing is buying more nutrient uh, dense food that is better for the planet to grow, that is more sustainable, that's better for the soil, that, that needs to be looked at and reevaluated. Um, yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I don't think we're likely to see that just because it's organically grown, it's got better nutrient density than we used to have in this country. You know, and, and uh, this is maybe too much down the rabbit hole, but nutrient density of food is really highly correlated with the carbon footprint of food, right? Or the, or the I should say the lack of carbon footprint of food, right? When you have the biodiversity in the soil, when you've got that microbiome of the soil, it's because there's biodiversity and, and, and carbon matter in the soil. Uh, that means it's got generally storing carbon. It's good for the carbon foot of the burn of food, but it also leads to a lot more nutrition in the soil. But it's it's really days for that. Like I, I barely understand that. Maybe I don't even understand it that well. I don't think, you know, most consumers even would know what we're starting to talk about here. So but, wait, but I do think actually, but I, I don't want to, I'm not pessimistic about the role of consumers here, right? Like I actually, I want to talk about what I think is going to happen, right? I think that, um, I think that consumers, I know that consumers care about climate change right now. That's not, that's not up for debate. Like there's been an endless amount of research that's made that clear recently of both parties in this country and, and of people all over the world. Um, what people don't know is the carbon footprint of their food, but they're starting to ask it. 
And lots of food companies are starting to talk about it, including big food companies, which again, mm -hmm. I think shows the, the positive role some big food companies could have in this. And I think that consumers are going to pay more for and choose foods with carbon neutral and carbon negative footprints. And, um, and I say that knowing that there's been a lot of market research that says that consumers won't pay more for food that's better for the environment. So a, a lot of marketing experts say, you're being naive, Paul, in thinking that people will pay more for green green products because you know research has shown that they won't. But I, I disagree. Like when I look at the organic movement, you know, which as I said, I don't think has made the planet that much better. Uh, and I don't think it's proven to be healthier. People are buying buying more organic food. It captures more and more organic, uh, more and more market share. And they pay a huge price premium, less than it used to be, but it's still huge. They're doing it because they perceive it to be, whether it is or not, they perceive it to be better for the health and better for the environment. And that's that's more important to me than research data. That's actual market data, right? So once we can show consumers that food with carbon neutral and carbon negative footprints is both better for the health, which it will be because there's more biodiversity in the soil and that it's better for the environment. And it's actually better in lots of ways. It's better for water. It's better for runoff. But in particular, it's better for the climate, which is every young person's number one priority right now. People will choose it over foods that don't have carbon negative or carbon neutral footprints. And that's going to cause an enormous flight in consumer demand to foods with carbon negative and carbon neutral footprints. And that's going to create, I think, one of the greatest entrepreneurial opportunities of our lifetimes. You're going to see food startups that grow fast and, and, and achieve success in ways that we probably haven't seen, in my opinion, since you know the dot-com boom in the late 90s. Uh, and even though it corrected itself, you know, the internet industry didn't go away, as we know, right? Hmm. And it's going to cause an enormous amount of capital to flow in from growth, private equity, and venture capital firms. Uh, and I think a lot of them are going to make a lot of money and, and, and good for them. I hope they do. It'll create a virtuous cycle where we see more and more businesses that do these things. And the big food companies will either see the writing on the wall and they'll create their own carbon negative food brands. And I hope they do. And if they don't, they'll, they'll acquire the startups. And that's fine, too. Um, you know, they'll reward the entrepreneurs and the investors for taking the chances to, to compete with them. That's it for this episode of PMA Takes on Tech. Thanks for allowing us to serve as your guide to the new world of produce and technology. Be sure to check out all our episodes at pma.com and wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe and I would love to get any comments or suggestions of what you might want me to take on. For now, stay safe, eat your fruits and vegetables, and we will see you next time.